0: So if you're just joining us we're in the middle of a study this semester about the birth of the people of God and we're discovering that uh, God's intention for human history it turns out is is more than just fixated on individuals fulfillment rather he begins to call it a group a body a people together of uh, who are redeemed who together go out to accomplish God's purposes in the world but i wonder if you've noticed how often whenever we tell uh, hero tales to each other that a group of people oftentimes will come to a moment of decision, uh, you, you know, a time in which they must either act or be destroyed. It's the last straw. Because almost always at that moment, there's someone who comes about to sort of rally the troops. Uh, you know, They're there to be a leader, to sort of put the people in the direction they need to go. Uh, there's a redeemer who comes and gives them exactly what they need in order to accomplish it. I love reading the speeches of the people that do that. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why I'm so uh, fascinated by World War II, because it's loaded with these kinds of speeches that people made to rally troops to do it. I mean, who can forget Winston Churchill standing before the House of Commons in 1940 when he said this? He says, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crimes. That is our policy. It gets you roused up even now, doesn't it? Or or even General Eisenhower on the eve of D-Day, all the soldiers got a letter from him that said this, you are about to embark upon a great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the eliminations of Nazi tyranny over oppressed people of Europe, and the security for ourselves and the free world. That's still stirring. These people went on to do amazing things because they were inspired. But I want to suggest something to you this morning, that the reason why those stories from history inspire us the way in which they do, is because they echo the manner in which God brings about the salvation of his people. So many times over in the Bible. Because we come to a story, we come to a story in the book of Exodus, that represents the great turning point for Jewish suffering. You know, the chapter ended with them sort of crying out and groaning because of their oppressors. They they need something to happen. And so we find out this morning that that turning point comes when God begins to raise up a deliverer. You know, we're looking at the book of Exodus as a story that became this template for how all of the people of God viewed their lives. And as we begin to study this book, we're hoping that Exodus can become our story as well. Perhaps even our story of turning points. I mean, I look at a room across like this, and I think to myself, there might be a few people that need some good news about turning points here this morning. I mean, I think, honestly, it's a little too large a a room to think that there's not someone here who's actually toying with the idea of walking away from Christianity. It's just too much water to the bridge. There's, There's too much hurt pressing in on your life. And though you may never admit it in the person sitting in the pew next to you, you're about to walk away. You feel on the brink of it. But at the same time, if you're being honest, there's almost an indefinable sense of anxiety that you wish things would turn around for you. So my question this morning is, is it possible that you came here uh, just to get some hint of the hope of a turnaround in your life? But our question is, how would you know if it was happening? Our passage, I think, has a lot of wisdom for those of us who wish so badly that something in our lives would change to be different from the way in which it's been. And so I want to start try to draw out three points of wisdom that come from this passage that instruct us in this very way. The first one is simply this: turning points will come from places that you rarely expect. That's number one. Because what's striking about these verses between chapter one fifteen and two ten is all of the heroes are women. You know the Hebrew midwives sail the male babies, uh, kings, the king's daughter Pharaoh, uh, the the Pharaoh's daughter uh, inadvertently rescues Israel's redeemer. And you don't have to be like some accomplished historian to know that women didn't necessarily fare very well in this particular civilization. I mean, the truth was, the rise of Christianity did enormous things to help sort of even out the equality between the sexes, but none of that had happened up until this time in this story. You know, Moses, this great deliverer, would not be here if it weren't for these two faithful Hebrew women, Shippur and Pua. And of course, we don't even get the king of Egypt's name, but we know their name. You see what's happening? We have to get it through our heads that it is the pattern of God's working to work through the marginalized and the downtrodden, not through the loud and flashy. But for some reason, it's hard for the people of God to realize this, Moses included. In verses 11 and 12, we see that he kind of sees himself as a rescuer, but the way he's going to do it is by killing another person. And, of course, that's met with some resistance right out of the gate. But you can see the mentality. He's going to take the bull by the horns, right? Let's go ahead and, and do some feats of daring to get the ball rolling on this whole rescue plan. But, of course, God's way is never that way. You know, we always seem to want for the advance of God's kingdom to sort of come through our brute force. But, you know, only God has that authority in the Bible. And Moses' attempt to kind of bring around the salvation of his people through a through a military or violent means is immediately and providentially stopped in his tracks. And suddenly he's sent out into the wilderness until he learns something about what it means to be a servant. He's got to be a shepherd, something that Egyptians hate, by the way. We learned that earlier on. What this means is if you're looking for your life to turn around, it means you're going to have to adjust your vision to seeing the world the way in which God sees it. And when we think about changing our lives, we, we usually imagine something really dramatic, don't we? You know, we sort of stand up, we're being asked to stand up in front of a crowd of people and talk about how a bomb went off in the middle of our lives and nothing was the same after that. Someone wrote an article about us in the newspaper. Hollywood called for the movie rights. No. No, God's ways of dealing with people are in the things that probably presently you are now overlooking from the poor the marginalized, the hurting, the simple, the outcast. That is where a Christian's vision trains himself because he sees God working in those places. But secondly, we see turning points happen when we reinterpret the mundane events of life. Reinterpret the mundane events. See, because God is like a, he's like a behind the scenes worker in this chapter, isn't he? Because there's so many hints throughout the passage that there's something really significant about this whole Moses birth. First of all, there's some interesting parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Noah, which you can't recognize, because that word translated basket that Moses gets placed into in the river is the same word that's used for ark back in Genesis chapter 9 in talking about Noah. You know, Moses is being saved out of trouble through water, just like Noah. And of course, there's irony throughout the whole chapter. You know, everything that Pharaoh plans to do ends up accomplishing just the opposite of what he intends. His big genocide leads to nothing more than the flourishing of God's people. Even his own daughter participates in the Hebrew salvation. In other words, every plan that he makes pushes Yahweh's agenda even further along. You know, who's really in control here is what we're seeing. And finally, and I think most interestingly, doesn't this story sound a little familiar to you? You know, you have a boy who is born under the threat of genocide, who goes on to be the savior of his people. Soon after reaching adulthood, he's driven into the wilderness to prepare for a lifetime of ministry. You see, Moses is what we call a type of Christ, okay? He's an example, a figure, sort of a a veiled hint of what God is up to when he finally saves the whole world through Jesus. That's what's being said here. And so I think that Moses is trying to get us to see that there's this invisible hand that's sort of guiding and orchestrating in the background all of these events, Theologically speaking, we call this the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence is just his his working out everything that happens, everything that goes on to his purposes. There, There is no mundane and insignificant in God's world. They're all woven together as this master tapestry to bring about the salvation of his people. Here's a terrified mommy with her child, and God is still at work. Which, by the way, I think is a great way to understand what's going on when you reach those kind of turning points in life. Some of you, some of you may have known people who've had spiritual turning points, but we don't often ask, like, what happened when, when you went through that? This has been a pet sort of topic for mine, and I ask questions of people when they talk about big turning points for this very reason. Because I found that at some point along the way, people began to look at the events of their life up until that time, in a wholly, totally different way. Before, everything looked kind of disjointed and sort of random. They didn't they didn't cohere in any logical way. But suddenly, they came to their senses. And when they did, they did, they began to see all those events, not as random, but as things that God was doing. The result of bringing them where they were. They, they reinterpreted all of their personal history around what God was doing in them. I've actually come to believe that this is what the Bible is talking about when it mentions what faith is. Faith is when we start to relook at our lives and see what God is doing as the orchestrator of all of them. There's a great movie from the late 90s starring Michael Douglas called The Game. Uh, Douglas plays this um, sort of very wealthy man who's got a brother with whom he's estranged, but who shows up in his life and invites him to participate in this game. And he reluctantly agrees. But the game begins without him even really knowing it. And suddenly, all of these strange, inexplicable, but deeply frustrating things start to happen to him. His life literally begins to spiral out of control. And the movie looks as if it's going to end with this poor man's suicide as he jumps off a building. But right as he jumps off the building, he suddenly lands in the middle of a giant white X on a huge air pillow that was on the ground below. And as he gets up, he looks around and he sees all the people of his life, even the people who formerly were opposing him and they're all celebrating his new perspective on life. It is incredibly powerful as a cinematic moment. Why? Because it's getting you to ask a question. What if the events of your life have not been so much you seeking answers and meaning, but God seeking you? showing you just what you need to know at exactly the right time. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Brings me to the third point, though, and that is that turning points come when God acts. That's the real deal. You know, we're ready to finish that point that I began in the first point of the sermon because turning points happen when God raises up someone, when there's finally someone who's going to go between them and his people who, who will lead them well who'll embody all of what they need to be so that they can be released from their bondage. And I would submit to you that Moses acts, God acts in at least two ways through Moses. Number one, he acts as a redeemer. And number two, he acts as a lover. He acts as a redeemer, first of all. Look, I already mentioned that Moses sees these parallels between himself and Noah. They both use this ark to pass through the waters of salvation. But you know, even the daughter of Pharaoh, when she gives him his name, starts to fulfill this. Because Moses means to draw out. I drew him out of the waters, he says in verse 10. What a perfect name, given the fact that God would use Moses to draw his people out of Egypt. You see, the significance of naming comes up over and over again. Fast forward to to Joseph, when he's sort of trying to figure out what to name the child that Mary is pregnant with. And he's told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Moses will be the means by which he saves his people, so will Jesus. These parallels continue to occur with all these connections between Moses and the sort of true and better Moses, who, who is Jesus. You're like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior and was rescued from an evil ruler at birth. Like Moses, Jesus traveled and spent time in Egypt. Remember, out of Egypt I've called my son, Matthew 2. Like Moses, there were silent years that occurred before his public ministry. Like Moses and the Israelites who wandered around for 40 years, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to spend 40 years to be tempted by the devil. Just like Moses did on Mount Sinai, Jesus goes up to a mountain to deliver the law, his famous Sermon on the Mount. You see what's being signaled here? Now, granted, it's got to be stated that for as many parallels there are between Moses and and Jesus, there's also some contrasts as well. Jesus didn't have to learn to be the leader that Moses had to learn because he was immature. And the only way in which he learned to get through that immaturity was out in the wilderness. But there he sort of learns how God is molding him into what he wants him to be. Eventually, Moses was going to become what was described as the meekest man who ever lived. Where did he get that? Well, I think we get a hint of it there when he marries Zipporah and they have a child named Gershom. And the name Gershom means one who was driven away or stranger or sojourner. Now look, that would just be, that would be mildly interesting to you if we didn't have the rest of the Bible commentating on that. Because if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you get this whole chapter of um, uh, heroes of the faith. you Remember this? And Moses is like all over these things. And he says that there, at this time in the wilderness, there was a time when Moses, quote, admitted that they were strangers and aliens on the earth. That's the key. You see, while Moses was in the wilderness, he learned that the way in which God really moves only happens when you submit yourself to his interpretation of life. I am the stranger here. My life is part of a story that he is telling. That's when things start to turn. But again, God begins to act when he does so through a redeemer. Moses, Moses, granted, is somewhat unlike Jesus. But man, it seems like the whole chapter is signaling us to Jesus. It's pointing aggressively to see how is Jesus going to act in a role in our salvation? Because as it turns out, this is the place where the real power comes to sort of break the enslavement that we're all wrestling from. Go back to Hebrews 11 for a second. In verses 23 to 26, we find that the New Testament writers considered to be the real reason why Moses was a hero for the Jewish people to be this. Listen, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the short-lived pleasure for sin. For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward did you hear how that was talking <laughs> moses didn't associate himself with his royal upbringing instead he latched himself onto his true people the jews which which you've got to see what he's saying there this is the language of association of connection of covenant bonding moses was effective because he was the one who was going to stand in for his people He would represent his people. Even later on, we're going to find that he will ask for judgment and punishment instead of his people. You see what's happening? The power comes by showing that he's going to be their redeemer. This is exactly what you get in the New Testament. Fast forward to Jesus and his conversation with John the Baptist. This is a weird moment because Jesus comes to be baptized. And John the Baptist is completely freaked out by it. No, (laughs) baptism is for sinners, Jesus. You don't need to be baptized. And Jesus says, no, no, suffice it for now so that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean to fulfill all righteousness? What Jesus is saying is this, is I'm assuming something. I'm associating myself with you. I'm identifying myself with you. I'm building a moral record that will be for you. In other words, he's bringing freedom. Look, the people of God will draw their fundamental sense of identity off of their association. That's what we are here this morning. It's not because of our moral excellence. It's not because of our pedigree. It's not because of our connections in the the South. It's not because of our political affiliations. The people of God are who they are because of their connection to Jesus. That's what Moses is screaming at us here. But then secondly, though, God acts as a lover. Because I would submit to you that you get all the summary of what God was doing here at the very end of chapter 2. Look, verses 23 to 25, you know, sort of unpack the essence of what God is up to. Because even though there are these random events that seem to be happening, where is God in all this? They're still suffering. Well, then we find out exactly what he's doing in verse 24 and 25. Look at it. He's hearing He's remembering, he's seeing, and he's knowing. Y'all, that's so powerful. It's worth unpacking one at a time. It says, first of all, God is hearing. God's working through Moses is his answer to his people's crying. Is literally his hearing. Commentator F.B. Meyer suggested that, that to God, tears have a voice. <laughs> they say something and God knows how to interpret it. He grasps what it means. It's passages like this that led the psalmist uh, uh, in Psalm 56 to say things like, you have kept count of my tossings at night. (laughs) You have kept count of my insomnia, I like to translate. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What's he saying? God hears, he knows. Secondly, though, God is remembering. This is going to go on, by the way, to be a huge theme in the Old Testament, this remembering thing. Because time and time again, when the people of God begin to fail big, their issue is not whether or not God is pleased or displeased with them. What they wrestle with is if God is going to be faithful to them in the midst of their unfaithfulness. That's the question. And every time he stands by his promises, you know what he says? It says that he remembered. He remembers. That's covenantal language, talking about God's absolute determination to bless Thirdly, God is seeing. You know, one of the strange effects of suffering is how much it can make you feel like a spectacle. You know, you either feel like people are painfully aware of you or you feel like you're just the invisible person. All pain, I think, drives us into a sense of isolation that way. It turns out there's a, a, there's a Scottish act, uh, uh, advocacy group uh, that fights for assistance for people with mental health problems. problems. <clears throat> and the testimonies on their website talk about how People struggling with mental illness report feeling just utterly isolated, completely out to lunch. But I find it interesting that this group named their organization See Me. See Me. Will there be someone who will see me? I don't know the values of the organization, but I love that name because here at the Jews' darkest hour, they have a God who sees. He sees. And then finally, it's a God who knows. By the way, that verb there means so much more than he is aware. (laughs) If you have the NIV translation, it says that he was concerned. No, 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 no. That is way too tepid. That doesn't even come close to the significance of this word. Now, the Hebrew verb translated to know is used in other places in the Bible for places of really like deep, powerful intimacy. Even so, at one point, it'll become a synonym for sex. Remember, Adam went in and knew his wife. Same verb. Same verb here. You see what that means? We reach a spiritual turning point when we cry out not to a God who's going to swoop in and fix everything. Not to a God who's finally going to get me that new job that earns me 10% more than I was making before. Not even the turning point happens when, when God brings back that estranged child back into the fold of my family. Now, the turning point happens when you begin to realize this is a knowing God. A God who enters in with. A God who is intimate with. And you get these little echoes, don't you? (laughs) Of what God is ultimately going to have to do in order to relieve his people's suffering on a cosmic scale. He comes down and he suffers with. To see that we're rescued. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Look, in Jesus, you have a redeemer who, just like Moses, hears and remembers and sees and knows. In short, he is a lover of his people. And that love is empowering. It, bold, it emboldens God's people to do what it takes to get rid of their slavery. You know, speaking of great uh, speeches from military moments, one of my favorite comes from uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, who apparently was leading an army against the great Spanish Armada in 1588. And as the story goes, uh, weirdly and shockingly, she shows up on the battlefield, not just away from all her royal protection, but arrayed in actual battle gear. And then she says this, I am amongst you at this time, not as for my recreation or sport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live or die amongst you all. To lay down for my God and for my kingdom and for my people and my honor and my blood. And of course, they go on to defeat the Spanish Armada. How? Because that's where the power comes from. That sense that someone knows me deeply and powerfully is enough to sort of give me the strength to begin to turn that ship that I'm presently on, to reach a turning point. Let me close with a couple quick thoughts of application. Because it occurs to me that, like, talking about turning points means that there's two different kinds of people. On the one hand, this morning, if you find yourself in, on the inside of Christianity, I do think it's worth us asking a question why it is so often that when we begin to speak about our spiritual lives that the name Jesus, I don't know, didn't come up more. (laughs) So often when we start thinking about our spiritual lives, we immediately go to our duties, to our performances. But what we're finding is that the very nature of our fellowship, the very foundation of our fellowship is about our connection to him. Shouldn't we be talking about him a little bit (laughs) more? Unless, of course, and this is worth thinking about, we're still on a program to save ourselves with our religion. And somehow this becomes a means to our self-salvation. I hope not. But I guess if there's other people, though, who do find themselves on the outside of Christ this morning. This is quite foreign for you. And for you, I've got really good news. Because the gospel really is simply this. There is one who hears. There is one who remembers. There's one who sees and there is one who knows. Go find him. (laughs) And you found the opening to your release from slavery. That's the message of Exodus too. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you at this moment invite us in, even as we come and stand before this table, as we come to celebrate what you have given, we pray that we would see that you are indeed just that kind of a God and that we would long to know and draw near to you as you have drawn near to us. Would you this morning work in our hearts, we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.